Hey, would you grab your Bible, turn to John 9, let's read our text this morning, and then kids will send you guys off. I guess everybody survived, I guess for here you survived snow, whatever it's been called. My bedroom did not, we had a pipe burst in our bedroom, and so uh, it needs a resurrection, and so uh, anyway, um, I did lay hands on it, it hasn't happened yet, but anyway... All right, so we, the blind man is healed. He's a formerly blind man now. And so we're going to start at verse 13 and go to, I think, 28. So let's, so please follow along with me. So they brought to the Pharisees the blind man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, and he said he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind, and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, He is of age, he will speak for himself. That statement is not true, they're lying. 22 gives us why they didn't want to tell the truth. So his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews, this is the religious leaders, had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And they answered him, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. So everything we see in John chapter 9 began with a theological question that came from the disciples wanting to know whether or not that the reason this man was born blind because that was the prevalent thought and teaching of the day was that this man had done something sinful in the womb before he was even born and so that had cursed him in a sense and he was born blind or the man's parents had done something And that had caused this reality in his life. And sometimes when we read these stories, there are so many things in the backdrop of those things. And this is of these stories. And this is one of those stories that is definitely true. And so today in this section that we just read, we will encounter this reality. That real spiritual knowledge is found only when Christ opens our eyes. The blind man didn't have the power before Jesus touched him. There's nothing that he could have done to bring this about. Only Christ 
can do this. But a rejection of Jesus and remaining in our sin will continue to keep one from a true knowledge of who Christ is. And so real spiritual knowledge is connected to Christ's work of opening our eyes. Continued blindness is connected to those who reject Christ. They fight Him at every turn, the religious leaders. They are just not going to agree um, as to who He is. They're just going to continue to deny Him over and over. And they will continue to choose self. They will continue to choose sin. And they will continue to reject the Savior. John 9, under the inspiration written by John, by the Holy Spirit, is a text that reveals to us what is true spiritual blindness. And it's connected to the Pharisees. It is not connected to this man. Yes, he is he's spiritually blind, and we won't get there till next week, but he comes to faith. They're going to excommunicate him out of the temple, out of the synagogue, out of a religious life. And Jesus will meet him outside the temple. He will open his spiritual eyes, and the man will come to faith. But he is beginning this process um, with this man. And so John is writing to indicate by looking at the religious leaders, what true spiritual blindness looks like. Now, I'm going to pose a question and make a statement here this morning, and I want to see whether or not you agree with me. This is a very important statement, so get your thinking cap on, as my dad used to tell me. And so here's my statement. Every person who is from the planet of Jupiter has blue eyes and black hair. And so, think about that for a moment. And I don't know whether you agree with me. And you may ask, well, how in the world do I know that? Well, I feel that this morning. It's just kind of what I feel in the moment. It's kind of what I think. It's become my truth. And you're probably looking at me going, okay, what, what's the point of all this? Well, I, we don't know anything. We don't know if anybody lives on Jupiter but if they did, how would we know what they look like? We would have to see someone, right? They'd have to come here and say, hey, I'm from Jupiter, and this is what we're like. And if we were to see them, we would go, okay, okay. Doke's statement, Doke's thoughts about people from Jupiter is wrong. They actually have blonde hair and brown eyes and green skin. That's what a person from Jupiter looks like. So it's only when you see the truth and the reality that's there that you know. And so otherwise, it's just... A feeling. It's just, here's what I think. And I say that this morning for this reason. We have eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ. He had left heaven. He had come to earth to reveal who He is and reveal who the Father is so that we would know definitively who God is in a very up-close, personal way. So Christ came. He took on flesh he walked around, he healed, he preached, he ate with people, he talked with people, he cast out demons. People saw this. There were eyewitnesses who wrote about it. There were secular historians in the first century who wrote about the presence of this person called Jesus. They affirmed things, even secular historians, about who Christ is. And so when we see this story here and all that we've been seeing in the Gospel of John, this is not subjective truth. This is not made up truth. This is not people going, well, I just feel that Jesus was this way. Je these things were written because people saw this 
and they wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for us to know. And so we know things about Christ. We know about His life. We know the things that He said. We know the works that Jesus did. For He came and He revealed Himself to us. And the affirmation from Scripture of Christ permeates the Gospels and permeates the letters. Let me just share three just for a moment. This is Luke 10, 22. Jesus is speaking here. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So if you want to know who the Father is, you've got to know the Son. You want to know who the Son is, you've got to know the Father. And the Son reveals who He is to people. John wrote this in chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, which is a reference to Christ. So you have God the Father. How do you know who God the Father is? Well, the one who is at the side of God the Father, Jesus, came here and John writes, who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. This word known means to explain in the Greek. So when Jesus came and lived his life, when he taught and when he lived and everything that he did, he explained by his life and his words who the Father is. Here's one more in the upper room. On the night that Jesus is betrayed and arrested, Philip said to him in John 14, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, I have, have I been with you so long and you still don't know who I am? Whoever has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, Jesus said, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So listen to this as this sets the stage for our time this morning. The religious leaders also saw the glory of God in Christ. They rejected it. And they willfully fought Christ and put down the things that He was doing. And here's the reality is that sin always births unbelief. And being born in sin, there's a natural unbelief. So sin births unbelief and blinds and keeps many from the true spiritual knowledge of the glory of Christ. And this is the continuing theme as we are now in John chapter 9. So let's talk about this this morning. And I've already stopped this sermon. We're not going to, we're going to, we're going to, Stop at a unique place today and pick up next week But um, with this. But there are very significant things that are in here today that are relevant to our time. And let's talk about the first one. In verse 13 through 15, the blind man gives Jesus every bit of the credit. And this should mark our lives as well. The good things that come to us in our lives, we give God the credit. We're not the ones who do this. The knowledge that we have has been given by Him, the goodness that is in our lives, every good and perfect gift, James writes in James 1, comes down from the Father of lights in heaven. So look with, look with me in 13 through 15 again, and let's talk about this. So 
the man's been healed. His friends who knew him as a beggar recognize him, and, and they've come to the conclusion, okay, this is the guy who used to beg. He was blind. He now can see. What do we do about this? So somebody amongst the group said, okay, well, let's take him to the Pharisees, and let's show him to the Pharisees, and let's find out what's going on. So they brought to the Pharisees the man, which I love this phrase, who was formerly blind. He's not blind anymore. He's not going to go back to blindness. He has his sight. He's got a permanent healing. So it was a Sabbath, 14 says, when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he, referring to Jesus, put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. So again, this is the talk of the town. I mean, think about this this morning. I've never seen this. I'd love to see this. Can you imagine in this room this morning, somebody born blind and God moved this morning and they could see? Can you imagine what we would do? I hope we wouldn't just sit there and go, oh, let's try to explain this away. But can you imagine the excitement in this place? We would be praising God. Instead, they've got a man born blind, he is now healed, he is standing in front of them, and they begin the process of trying to belittle this work instead of celebrating what has happened in their midst. And so the talk of the, the, the temple is, okay, this is amazing that's happened, what do we do with this? Well, let's take him to the Pharisees. Maybe they can give some insight on this. So there's three possible reasons that they bring him to the Pharisees. One is, Jesus had violated the Sabbath. There was a rule. You can't heal. You can't work. You can't do things on the Sabbath day. And so they go to tattletale on Jesus. I don't know if you have any tattletales in your life, but people tattletale since the beginning of time. And so they come to make it known. Secondly... The Pharisees, and we'll, we'll talk about this in, 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 in the future of this sermon this morning, they held a huge, powerful fear tactic over the people. And so they may, have, they may have wondered, because they knew that there was controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders, and they had been threatened that if anybody affirms who Jesus is, and so they're like, okay, here's this guy, he's done this healing on the Sabbath, Boy, the Pharisees, if I know that he's done this work and I don't go tell them about this, I may get in trouble and they may kick me out of the synagogue. So let's bring the man to the Pharisees and then they can deal with the situation. Or thirdly, maybe they're just blown away. And they're like, who can explain what has just happened in our midst? And so they bring him thinking, well, surely our righteous religious leaders, they'll be able to tell us. How do we understand a man who was born blind now is able to see? And it makes me smile every time I read this verse. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Formerly blind. He sees now. His retinas, whatever was wrong, he's got new eyes. They work. 2020 vision. No more feeling around on the walls. No more remembering how many steps it takes to get to this step. No more remembering that. He sees everything that he had once had memorized. He sees it now and doesn't have to recall it in his mind. He sees literally everything. And I tell you, sometimes 
it is really difficult to argue with life transformation. When you see somebody who has been changed by the power and the salvation of Jesus, it is hard to argue with it. Unless you're a Pharisee, you can find anything to argue over and to fight about. And that's exactly what they do. So they bring him to the Pharisees. And it's a Sabbath day, we learn. This is not the first time that he has healed on the Sabbath. They had crazy, crazy rules. And I'll just say this this morning. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, meaning this. He can do whatever he wants to do on the Sabbath day. He's not bound by man's rules. He's not bound by what the Pharisees had established. Only you can do these kind of things on the Sabbath day. Jesus was not constrained by any of those things. And so the Pharisees, though, they had felt that their rules equated to the level of the Word of God. In some ways, they put them higher than the written Word of God. Now, one of the rules that they had, now listen to this. I want you to just think how silly this is. This was written down and was taught to the people. On the Sabbath, ladies, you may not be able to relate to this as much, but we guys can. You could spit on the Sabbath. But you could only spit on a rock. Make sure you didn't spit where it landed on the dirt. Because if it landed on the dirt and the spit rolled a little bit, it would get dust or dirt on it and you would make a mud ball, in a sense, and you would be working, violating the Sabbath. That's, that was a rule. Crazy. Spit on a rock, can't spit on the dirt. Well, we know enough about Jesus that he doesn't buy into religious folly and foolishness. He's going to do what his father did, and he would say what his father said. And it seems possibly a bit intentional on this day that he spit in the dirt, made the mud, put it on the man's eyes to show the ridiculousness of their rule. Now, I want to stop here just for a moment and just touch on this. In case we think there's not ridiculous teaching and thinking in the church today, in and around it, it's present. On my social media feeds, on my Facebook and Instagram, I've been getting this pastor, this video. And so yesterday, I finally clicked on it. thought, okay, this keeps popping up. Let me just look at it. And there's a pastor He's also a seminary professor at a Methodist seminary. And I clicked on it, and his teaching thing comes up and says, here's the way to simplify your messages if you're a pastor, where you never have to make an outline again. You can just do this. And his, his message yesterday was a little over a minute, and it was this. This was his counsel. Listen to country music, and you will get ideas how to learn how to put together a sermon. So I thought, I laughed when I watched that. I thought, okay, interesting. I like some country music. Good storytelling, you know. And then I clicked on six other things that he's taught. And not one time did he mention for pastors to read the scriptures to put together their outlines. Look at culture. Learn from culture. Learn what moves people. Brings them to tears. And let that be the guide of how you preach. 
So for the last 2,000 years and for the last many thousand years, in and around Judaism and the church, there has been foolishness taught. Jesus wasn't going to buy it. We cannot buy it either. So Jesus is doing exactly what was God-ordained on that day, and that was to do good to a man who had been born blind, to do something powerful in this man's life, to begin to move him to a place of spiritual freedom. So there's a great danger if you've grown up in the church that you have traditions. We all have traditions that, we, that mean something to us, but they don't equal biblical mandates. Let me give some examples. So we have this thing. It's called a pulpit. I put my stuff on. The first church I started in southwest Fort Worth, I didn't have a pulpit. I put my Bible on a music stand. My grandmother... Love her. God rest her soul. And she's with Jesus today. She would come to visit our church. And I would preach from a music stand. And not from a pulpit. And she would, she would tell my mom. He doesn't have a pulpit. He needs to get a pulpit. He doesn't need to preach from a music stand. Now my mo- grandmother grew up in an era. Where he had big huge pulpits in churches. And that was her preference. It was what. She knew. Is there any wrong, anything wrong with preaching from this and preaching from this? No, it's just a preference. But we've got to be careful that we don't eat, make that be some kind of biblical mandate. Here's another one. 1960s, if you went to church on a Sunday morning, boy, you dressed up. You looked good. Ladies wore dresses really nice. Guys, you know, three-piece suits and ties and everybody was looking good well there was something that happened in the 60s called the jesus movement and all these hippies with jeans and t-shirts started coming to christ and recognized i need to go to church and so in a church you had people who grew up thinking okay you dress up really really great and then you had people who came to christ in the hippie movement and they came and in a building you had this mixture that that caused some friction because there was traditions of you dress up when you go to church and now you've got these new people who've come to Christ and they're now coming to church. By the way, the Bible gives us no counsel in regard to how does a pastor supposed to dress on Sunday mornings. As a matter of fact, we have to be careful about those things. And so we have preferences about that, which is totally okay. I will never wear a tie unless you die or you get wet. You're going to get married. I'm just telling you right now. I'm not going to do it. Maybe on Easter, I might do it. So, so you have that. So all, all around, there are traditions that do not equal biblical mandates. And one of the grave issues with the religious leaders is they had made their laws, their traditions, greater than Scripture. So Christ comes along who ultimate freedom following the Father's work did things that violated their man-made traditions and rules. And on this day, he heals a man on the Sabbath. Not only did he do that, he spit in the dirt. Can you believe that guy? He spit in the dirt. And I love, when I started thinking about this, um, as we got ready for, for to, to come this, this morning, um, I, 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 I wish somebody had had a Polaroid back then 
and taken a picture of the religious leader's face. Can you imagine what they thought every time somebody said, he spit in the dirt and made mud, and they're, they're probably looking at each other, who does this guy think he is violating our spitting rule? What in the world is wrong with him? You see, following traditions grounded in religious rules can keep people from experiencing the truth that can set them free. And the folly of the false religious human heart wants to know the mode in which this man has got his healing instead of just celebrating that a man is at his healing. I mean, they should have just gone, they, somebody should have said, hey, what's it like seeing now? Wouldn't you like to know? Wouldn't you like to talk to somebody who never in their whole life has seen anything and now they are seeing something? And it's just a 30 minutes, 45 minutes, two hours old, and they've been seeing for a couple hours. Can you imagine the excitement that would have been there? But nobody wants to ask the man anything. They just want to attack Jesus because they have an issue with what he's doing. Now, the man just continues to give solid testimony. Who did this? Who did this? Jesus did. Jesus did this. And they don't know what to do. And they're trying to figure out how do we get out of this reality of what's happened and taken place. There's a man who couldn't see, and now he can see. And this man is not afraid of their animosity toward Christ. He's not afraid of their pressure that they're trying to put on him. He's just going to continue to talk about who has healed him. He keeps pointing and giving Jesus the credit for his healing. Now, I want to come back to one word before we move on to point two this morning, and that's the word formerly. If you've been in the faith for a while, and, and particularly if you were older, and you came to Christ, you had some habits that weren't God-glorifying. And there are some things that were formerly a part of our lives that are no longer a part of our lives because we knew that they were wrong and we needed to move beyond those things now that we've come to Christ and to walk in the truth of that. So I want to talk about some of those things. These former things that were part of our life, they give evidence that God has done a work in us. And so I remember me, I was a pretty good cusser at 17. Knew, knew how to get the guys going and knew how to say things. And then I came to Christ on a Sunday night and I recognized, okay, that, that needs to change. Did it happen immediately? Well, no, not immediately. But I began to recognize, okay, this can't be. And so I became a former cusser. And so when water is pouring into my bedroom, Tuesday, it's been decades since I've cussed, and so those words don't pop into my head anymore. They're former things. For some of us, we had addictions in our lives, whatever kind of addiction it was. And it's a former thing of our life. We are now walking in the freedom that comes from knowing Christ, that He brings that. Some of us have learned to move away from the Genesis 3 syndrome, which is we blame everybody for our sin and not take responsibility. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. And some of us have learned that, okay, when I sin, it's not my spouse's fault. It's not my boss's fault. I chose to do that. And so some of us have moved from, 
a former place of blaming others for our wrongs, and now we take responsibility for the things that are part of our lives. Some of us, our former life had bad doctrine and bad understanding about Christ, and now we've moved to a place of good doctrine and good understanding in solid places. Some of us have moved from, oh, I don't make enough money to tithe, to now trust, now recognizing I don't make enough money to tithe, but I trust and I tithe anyway because God has mandated for me to do that. And there are all of us, there are former things that were part of our life. We were formerly this, and now Christ has touched us, and now this has happened in our lives. And praise His name this morning, that's the case. We're not who we were. There's a newness because of the work that He has done. And so here's what happens. There's the beginning to make it a divide. They've got this man standing in front of him. His neighbors affirm that he was blind. He affirms, I was blind and now I see. They're about to bring his parents to give a third affirmation of this. And now he's standing in front of them. And the Pharisees are talking about this. And their perspective of Jesus divides the Pharisees. One group says, okay, he's violated the Sabbath. By healing, working, he spat on the ground, not a rock, and he made mud. And so this guy obviously is a sinner. So one part of the group of the religious leaders, when the neighbors bring the blind man, former blind man standing in front of them, they go, okay, this guy's a sinner. But then there was another group that separated from them, and they were like, hey, wait, 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 guys, let's stop. A sinner couldn't do this. Someone who wasn't a friend of God. Someone who intentionally violated the teaching of the Sabbath. He never would have healed anybody. So wait, let's, 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 let's be careful to not label this guy a sinner. Because a sinner couldn't do this. Only God has the authority and the power to be able to bring sight to a man who was born blind. So here's point two this morning. Jesus, nothing new, divides people how they see him. There's always been the case. There's always been a division in regard to Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught this several times. I'm going to read them to us. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 10. I want you to listen to these words of Christ. This is Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then later, Luke will write this as well. In Luke chapter 12, he will write these words in 51 through 53. Or 49. We'll start in 49. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it would already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, 
but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, a father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter-in-law, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What's Jesus' point? He's the division maker. That's the thing. There are those who believe and then those who reject. Do you not have people in your family that it's difficult to talk about Jesus with? There's a division that happens there. And it's a natural division because the dividing person, the most important person in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. And so you're either a believer in him or you're a rejecter of him. And so here you've got the religious leaders having this blind man standing in front of them. And and Jesus' work divides even the religious leaders who have been against him. One group, this is a sinner. He violates the law of Moses. He violates our rules that we have established. And others are like, no, don't do this. A sinner couldn't bring about this miracle. We need to be careful about this. And so a great division happened among them. In the Greek, this word is schism. This is a heated debate, debate, again, with the blind man standing in front of them, a heated debate as to what to do about what Christ had done. And for the church today, let me bring some application at this point. This will continue to be the case for as long as the church exists. There will be division from the culture against the church, and there will be division within the church where people see Jesus and see things different. And I think, in my opinion, one of the great divides is spiritual against spiritual, not spiritual against secular. And I think it's always been that way. Paul wrote of it to Timothy and said this, there's coming a day, Timothy, when people are going to forsake sound doctrine and sound teaching and they're going to get teachers to tell them what they want to hear, to tickle their ears. And they will talk about God. Paul writes there in 2 Timothy 3. They will talk about God, but they will deny His power. They will have conversations, but deny the authority and the power that is there. And there is a danger that is connected with that. The great, greatest danger within the church, and I'll talk more about this um, in just a little bit, I think for the church has always been within the church. The New Testament church came to life under the authoritarian arm of Rome, where believers were killed, crucified, beheaded, burned at the stake. And so the great danger is not that. Actually, martyrdom, you probably know this, becomes the fuel for the growing of the church and the impassioned the passionate boldness of believers. But when the church loses its way, connected to the truth and who Christ is, it becomes weak. So they press the man. Let's look at third thing this morning. Jesus is more than. Verse 17, so they press the man. So they again say to the blind man, so what do you say? What do you say about him? Before it was how. How did this happen? But now what do you have to say about him? And there's some contradictory things that they say. Notice what they say here. Since he has opened your eyes. Now they're denying that Jesus has actually done this. And now they're saying, well, since he's opened your eyes, what do you have to say about this? What do you think about what he is doing? So they come at him the second time, kind of affirming 
based on his testimony and the neighbor's testimony. And so the man answers this. Well, here's what I'll say at this point in time. This guy must be a prophet. Now let's stop here for a moment. What did the prophets do of the Old Testament? God gave them his words. They shared the words with the people. And sometimes some of the prophets, they did mighty works. So before we, let's don't undersell this statement. He's not affirming that Jesus is God yet. But he is putting Jesus in the God camp. He's like, okay, this guy's a prophet. The prophets spoke and they did things for God and they were holy men. And so I couldn't see about two hours ago. And I'm seeing now. So if you want to know what I think, he's at least a prophet. He's someone whom God is at work in him. And he's doing something. And he did something in my life. And so he has way far more of an understanding than the religious leaders do. He is affirming that God is definitely involved in this miracle. And that Jesus has something to do with God. And I think every one of us, though, who comes to salvation, we have to move to a place where Jesus is more than a, a good man, a good teacher, a prophet. We've got to come to a place where he's God, and he will come to that place. He's not there yet, but he's coming to a greater understanding of who Jesus is. But let me ask this question for all of us this morning. Who is Jesus to you and I? What words do you and I use to describe him? They should always lead to a place of affirming that He's God, that He's Savior, He's Redeemer, He's the one who has atoned for sin. And we should be greatly acknowledging who He is, not lowering the words, but exalting and giving the highest words to Him. So Pharisees are divided. They bring the man in. What do you think about this guy who's done this? Well, he's at least a prophet. I know this. God's at work in this man and what he did in my life. And here's something that's natural. It's inevitable. We see it today. We are going to continue to see it. And here's point four. Jesus' work is always going to be attacked by false disciples. It's just going to be the case. So look at 18 now. Let's read through 23 again. Let's talk about this. So they've made a decision. They're just going to discount the man's testimony that he's been born blind. So the Jews, this means the religious leaders, did not believe that, they, that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until, notice until, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, I plead the fifth. Ask him. Ask him yourself. I don't want to self-incriminate myself. So, so why don't you ask him? He's of age. By the way, of age in the Jewish culture back then was 13. He's at least 13. He's at least 13. Who knows fully how old he is. So they come and they refuse his testimony. They refuse the neighbor's testimony. And now they ask the parents and they got three questions for the parents. Is this your son? Yeah, it's our son. Okay, um, will you confirm, was he born blind? 
born blind. What do you know by what avenue? He got his sight. I don't know. Ask him. All of this was designed to put pressure on the parents so that the religious leaders could use this to discredit Jesus. And they would have been told, um, the parents would have been told how their son had been healed. There's no doubt about that, that that would have gotten back to them. Okay, he can see now because of the Jesus guy who did this, but they plead the fifth because they don't want to incriminate themselves. I want to note this, hard-hearted people spend their energy attempting to discredit the gospel instead of embracing the truth of it. But those who believe the gospel, they spend their energy living and proclaiming the power of the gospel, and they are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So they ask him, they say, ask him. By the way, this threat was a serious threat. Let me read this to you. They had already kind of poisoned the proceedings of religious leaders by getting the word out that if anybody affirmed Jesus as the Christ, they would be removed from public worship. This was true. Listen to this. I read this in a commentary. Among the Jews, there were two grades of excommunication. One for lighter offenses, of which they mentioned 24 causes, and other for greater offenses. The first section um, excluded a man for, for, for 30 days from the privilege of going to the synagogue or from even coming near his wife or friends than four cubits. This was the original social distancing. It was called religious distancing back in the day. The other ones were really, really strong. The religious leaders would threaten with this, and they established this as a rule. That if you did one of the biggies, the biggies, whatever one of the biggies were, there were a number of them, you would never be able to have contact for the rest of your life with people. You couldn't come to the temple. You had to be separated from your wife, from your countrymen. And people were told that they were not allowed to sell anything to anybody who had been excommunicated in that way. Don't sell any of the necessities of life. So you can kind of understand why the parents are like, okay, we're not going to get involved with this. I'm not going to get involved. Because the danger connected with that was great. And yet what they failed to see was this. In about seven months, Pentecost would happen. And the church would be born. And there would be thousands of people in Jerusalem who would be baptized and a part of this growing community, and they would have a group of people. They could have found freedom that day, not excommunication. The man is going to get excommunicated. We'll look at it next week. They kick him out of the temple, and Jesus finds him again, because he does that, finds him again outside, excommunicated, and Jesus is like, hey, I've got some better news to you. How about spiritual sight that comes by belief in me? So Jesus' work is attacked always by false disciples. It is being done so in our day and time. Um, And if there's anybody in the room this morning that is living in some kind of fear that is crippling you spiritually, keeping you from moving forward with Christ, I just would greatly encourage you to not let a situation, not let some kind of false teaching tell you 
that you can't grow and you can't know Christ. And there are current attacks in our day and time on the church. Now, I need you to hear me right now. And I'm going to make some real practical application, and it's really important. I have been for 12 years now trying to get us ready for what I have been saying for 12 years was coming. And I believe it's coming. And I don't, I, I don't have a time frame. I just know that I need to get us ready to be prepared for what is coming. Jesus' greatest threat was not Rome. Though Rome was a threat. His great threat, His great battles were within Judaism. It was a religious system that Jesus fought and fought Jesus. The first century church was birthed under the authoritarian Roman government. Dictators. Where churches had their property and Christians had their property confiscated. They were thrown in jail. They had their children removed from them. They were beheaded. But that was not the greatest danger to the first century church. And the reason we know that government, outside pressure, was not the great danger is because the inward writings of the New Testament barely mention government. It mentions false teaching within the church as the greatest danger. Now let me give you some examples of this, or one example. I want you to go to Acts chapter 20 for a moment. And then we're going to come back and we'll finish things up this morning. So Paul has spent a long time with the church in Ephesus, living among them, being its pastor in the early days. And he has one last opportunity. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's been arrested again. Um, And he meets with the leaders of the church in Ephesus when the ship that he's riding on comes to shore. They've sent word for, to come to meet them. And so in Acts 20, verse 25, I want you to follow along with me. And I want you to hear Paul say what the great danger for the church is. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let's just stop there for a moment. How do you declare the whole counsel of God? What is the only way you can declare the whole counsel of God? You know how to do that? You go verse by verse through Scripture. You don't skip around. So that's what we do here. We go verse by verse through Scripture because it forces us to be confronted with true teaching that's biblical rather than avoiding it because it makes people uncomfortable. And so Paul says, I'm innocent because I've told you what God wanted me to tell you. And so I'm innocent of that. 28, now he gets really personal with them. Pay so close attention to yourselves and those you lead to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Here's Paul's great concern. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not not outside pressure 
from Rome. Fierce wolves will come from, come from outside within you. They'll become a part of the membership, a part of the group. And their aim is to not spare the flock. Look at 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So therefore, be alert, remembering that for, listen, listen to his pastoral heart, for three years I did not cease in the nighttime and during the day to admonish every one of you with tears. I want to stop there just for a moment. And I want you to know how much I love you. And that's why for 12 years I've pleaded with us who've been here, or if you, however long that you've been here, I've pleaded with you to line your life up with the Scripture, not with the cultural norms. And here's Paul saying, listen, I was a broken record for you for three years. At nighttime I said this, and when we met again in the morning I said this, and then at nighttime I said this, and the next morning I said, I pleaded with you with tears for three years that you would do this. And look at 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Listen, church. The greatest danger to the Western church is not government. Is government a danger? Absolutely. The greatest danger to the church is not misguided Christian nationalism. Thinking if we could just get the right person in office, then everything would be fixed. It would be nice to have God-fearing people in office. And that is a danger to the church, but it's not the greatest danger. The greatest danger to the church is not Marxism, though Marxism is a danger. The greatest danger to the church is for the church to drift from the truth of Scripture. That's the greatest danger. And to allow people to come in and say things and twist things to destroy. Most of the letters of the New Testament were written to deal with false teaching. Already, 20 to 30 years of the, into the church, this was an issue. And we have something in our day called progressive Christianity that uses Jesus' name and yet waters down and ignores historic teaching of the church. And though His name is used, those methods are used to attack the truth. And this becomes the greater threat as it becomes very popular. And it is the greater threat now again than government, than Marxism, than Christian nationalism, and any other kind of ism, ism, and ism that you want to throw out there. See, Christianity aims at accommodation and it weakens the church and faith. And in time, it destroys the church, seminaries, families, and denominations. But when the church is attacked and the church loves the truth, and the church, it costs the church something, the church gets stronger. It's refined through fire. You may not know this, because I'm a, 
of what I'm about to tell you, but I'm a big student of culture and what's going on. Australia has passed a law that if you counsel people to turn from homosexuality or gender confusion, you can be arrested. The next conversation that Australian lawmakers are having at this particular point in time is extending this to include sermons in Australia. And I've been telling you for 12 years this is coming. And let's not be foolish to think that it is not going to come in this country where what I am saying now will be in a sense outlawed. That you can't say this unless it costs you something. And so we're going to say it here and we'll pay the price. Now listen to this church. We don't win here. As a matter of fact, if you read what happens, believers, as we get closer, are slaughtered. But we do win ultimately because we're on the side of King Jesus. And so to create a church and a teaching system that accommodates a culture that is not interested in the truth is foolishness. And so we proclaim the Bible and we stand on a foundation that cannot be moved. Let the floods come. Let the winds howl. Let the snow vid come. God's people will stand. You know what's fascinating? Two days ago, the world was white and cold. But when the sun shines, it melts away the coldness. And it's green and it's colors again that's there. So here we have a man healed. And the religious leaders once again are like, no, not buying it, not buying it, not buying it. God's people need to know that we're going to be attacked just the way it's always been. Jesus was. But here's what we need, and this is where we'll finish today. His work, when we contemplate it and look at His life, it brings a certainty to our life. That though people put pressure, though people try to twist the truth, we just make our continued great confession. Standing on the truth and confessing it. So, so they're going to try again in 24 and 25. And so for the second time they call the man. Who had been bind, by the way, it says it again there. Just another way to say formerly. And they said to him, okay, we're going to tell you what to say because we don't like what you've been saying. So we're going to tell you what to say now. You say this, give glory to God. We know that this man that you've been talking about, he's a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I can tell you what I know. About two hours ago, I couldn't see, and now I can see. That's what I do know. And I'm standing there with the man who opened my eyes. They had not gotten the evidence that they wanted, the testimony that they wanted now from the parents, from the man, from the neighbors. And so they just tell him, okay, we're going to tell you what to say, which, by the way, is not authentic. You have to say this. Even though you don't believe it, you say it. And they're trying to force him 
to do this, asking him to declare an oath that God's going to get the credit and refuse to give Jesus the credit because the Sabbath breaker, spitter, he's broken the law of God and he is not a friend of God and he is not to be trusted. And for them, the matter is settled about Jesus. So they tell the man what he needs to say about Jesus. And John shows us this, that he is not going to waver. And he's not, a, he's not a believer yet. Again, I think he's, I've met people who were on the way to believing and they are coming to understand things about Jesus even before they believe. And he understands this reality. And so for them, it's settled. But for him, it's settled. And he's glorifying Jesus by affirming, continually affirming that Jesus is his healer. He's like, no, I'm not going to say what you tell me to say. I, here's what I know. That man touched me, and I see. So I'm, I'm going to continue to say, he's my healer. He is my healer. I'm not going to say anything else. He knows he has been touched by Christ. And I love what he does here. They're trying to change the subject, and he changes the subject. You give glory to God and you say that this man's a sinner. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. That man's my healer. He changes the subject back to Jesus being the center. He doesn't batter the pressure and say what they are demanding him to say. And I love this man as he changes the subject back to the change that had come into his life on this day. I tell you, sometimes a redeemed life is... The, the scripture is always the greatest authority, but sometimes a redeemed life is a great authority to communicate the power of God and the truth of who he is. Here's what he says. Here's the most definite thing, Pharisees, that I can tell you on this day. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if this guy's a sinner or not, but this is what I know. About 90 minutes ago, I could not see. And this I know for certain right now, I can see you. So I'm certain of that, that I've been changed, I've been transformed, my eyes are changed. And I tell you, our testimony, regardless of other people's views, is powerful, powerful. And this should be our declaration as well. I was dead, I'm alive, I was blind, I see, I was lame, I walk. And to affirm Jesus as the great agent of transformation. The great agent of transformation. So next week, we're going to get to the place now where um, I laugh. I love it because he's like, do y'all want to be his disciples? He's asking the Pharisees, like, don't you want to follow him too? And it's just funny um, as he communicates with them as they continue to challenge. And, and so we'll get there next week. But let's just close with this thought here. Christ's work brings his words and his work and his nature brings a certainty to our lives. Regardless of culture, regardless of misguided religious views and teaching that's not biblical and it's not mandated by Scripture. And so what do God's people do? They stand on the firm foundation. They are wise people 
who build their house on the rock so that when the winds come and the rains and the floods come, that house, that life stands because it's heard the words and walked with them. Not the foolish person who goes down to the beach and builds a life on sand and the floods come and the rains and the winds howl and that life is crashed. It, it, it's washed away because it's not founded on a foundation. And so, so I don't know. I don't have a time frame. I'm not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a preacher man this morning. That's all that I am. But I'm just telling you, we better be ready. Because Jesus is dealing with it here. Do you see that he's dealing with it? He's been dealing with it since John chapter 5. And this will result in him being on a cross. This, it's got the Father's purpose for him to go to the cross. But man's hard-heartedness toward him is going to be the avenue in which he gets there. We aren't exempt from his life and what he experienced. But can you imagine what it's like to stand together in truth? The disciples don't get it here. Again, they've asked this theological question. And from this moment in about 20 years, most of them will be dead. They will be dead. They will go as missionaries into pagan places like India and Africa. And they will lose their lives for the gospel. And if James could stand here, if Thaddeus could stand here this morning, you know what they would say? It's worth it. I lost in this life. I lost my head in this life. But I got Jesus. I got eternity in his presence. And so that's the kind of faith that's going to be able to navigate these days ahead. Whatever comes. You may have seen this as well. It's a pastor in Canada. Got arrested this week. Their church was meeting like this. And they arrested him and put him in prison for preaching the gospel on Sunday mornings. That happened last that happened this week. Last Sunday they arrested him after church. So it's here. Are we ready? Are we ready? Let's pray.